Violence, Violence, and More Violence, America Exposed. The blanket of racism has a big brother who wants to hold everyone in position. By a slow unraveling of the wiser relative, we learn the origins of our discontent. The book cast the origins of our discontents. The author, Isabel Wilkerson. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's Let's get get lit. Hi, readers. This is Alexis. And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. You sound a little dejected, a little sad today. Is it just because you're tired or because you've been uh, dumped into American history? <laughs> and were you this sad reading about it in high school? <laughs> I, I can't say that I read any of this stuff in high school, so I didn't have a reason to be sad. Okay, but so also I didn't really go to high school, so let's okay, say that we went to the same college. Kinda, did you have to take Western Civilization? Was it a prereq? Mm, I did. I do remember in Western Civ. I think that's what I did. The um, the wars, the um, the Second World. Yeah, war I loved that class. War, mm-hmm. and that was like really. I had a really good instructor for that, so that was fantastic. So yeah. one interesting thing about Western Western Civ at uh, should we just say the school? Does it matter? Maybe we shouldn't. They didn't pay us. Um, so the interesting thing about Western Civ at Marquette. And we still oops. paying them. So. <laughs> I pay them nothing. Um, I remember that class also dives into the history of um, national holidays, including Christmas and all of its pagan wow. origins. And people were upset. Oh, the really? cool thing about history. So next to English, history is my favorite subject and was my favorite subject uh, in school. Uh, But the reason for that is that history doesn't change. So I love that you can discuss it openly and people's reaction to it um, says more about them than it does about history. History is what it is. (laughs) So you can be angry. Um, I remember in class, uh, and this is a Jesuit university, uh, people were like, it's not your place to talk about religion. What? Okay. Oh, come on. But what about when religion is uh, seeped in history, both political and um, <laughs> and otherwise? So we can't talk about it now? No, we have to know where things come from. And just because you hide your eyes as to where things originate doesn't stop the origination. That's done. That's yep. been happened. You can believe yeah. it. You can choose not to. And I will agree that some professors can be biased. Some books can be biased. But there is usually a common thread throughout history that all historians cannot deny. So I like to look for those common threads. And that's why in our deep dive today, I will be quoting some historians from maybe the other side of the political aisle, different races, things like that, because this isn't a political podcast. We're going to talk about history today and it's going to be really edifying because Isabel Wilkerson. So I'm, but alas, I digress. So how was your week? <laughs> are you kidding me you are text you kidding me like me? three times like this is a lot <laughs> this yes. book is a lot i feel truly oppressed traumatized it's traumatic mm-hmm. 
It's, it's fine. very traumatic. I needed several naps. I could not function. I just, it just wasn't, it was too much. Well, you know but, what? Please remind me to include a content warning before our deep dive. Okay. Because it is a lot. You're right. So um, that's, that's a little, you know, in the, towards our conclusion. Well, then start but, the show then. But we're going <laughs> to. You I know mean, what I'm really, sick of us doing? Oh, I'm so talkative this morning. Yeah, yeah you are. Is, loud and talkative. Loud yeah, and it talkative. it is so early. We, we going to have us a consistent podcast, even if we got to get up at the um, what crack of dawn? What? Mm-hmm. Crack of yes, dawn. Because you won't um, let me start or finish or no. begin the podcast. So. <laughs> so, we started this morning and, Ale- and I was asking Alexis some questions. She was just looking at me. I thought the Zoom was froze. She said, you are loud. <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to whisper. Excuse me. Can I be See, me? Is this a safe space? It's a safe space. You know, I, I live alone. So to have just loudness in the morning, it's like, wow, she too is much, like really loud. And okay, I, go ahead, girl. Go ahead, girl, with your whole uh, uh, the more you know segment of the show. <laughs> Anyway, let's move on. Each week we <laughs> the theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. This week's theme will focus on African-American accomplishments because anything related to the book would be too sad. The book <laughs> describes the effects of the caste system. So we have a great amount of detail about that. And I wanted to focus on something a bit lighter. I found a couple of websites. The first website is blackpast.org and it has like 101 african-american first and the second site is bestlifeonline.com and it has an article titled the biggest achievements african-americans made the year you were born so that's like i love this say those sites one more time please um blackpast.com and they got an article um 101 african-american first and the second site is best life online.com okay um and we don't have time to go through all the accomplishments so i just accomplishments also y'all let me say forbes 500 last week and no (laughs) one corrected me so i'm looking at all y'all funny (laughs) look we just be listening and and laughing so we we don't don't care care if you work at wendy's popeyes or forbes 500 i said this is the most ignorant statement i've ever made on this show (laughs) listening back Okay, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, so Kari, if you had to list first or accomplishments by Black Americans, or um, what would you list? What would you identify? What would be like the first thing that came to your mind? Uh, the first thing that came to my mind would be the first open heart surgery <laughs> <laughs> performed by Daniel Hale Williams. He is a man of African descent in America, so he is a go. Black American man. And yeah. he performed the first the groundbreaking open heart surgery. And I had to do a report on him um, in my very progressive, predominantly white school growing up. And so I will never forget it. Oh, that's so, yeah, very cool. That's Daniel Hale Williams, or as I like to call him, D-Wizzy. He was cutting them things, putting in the organs, doing it up. Well, that's what about good. You? That's good. That's good. So listen, I'm just going to tell you. This is a long time ago, is in the area of business and labor. We have Anthony Johnson, who was the first prominent black landowner in the English colonies. And how come we didn't read about him in Black Fortunes? Right. 
Well, because that was about um, millionaires, I think. Oh, yes, yes. Or, I just you know, assumed like, he'd be a millionaire. So Yeah. So Johnson arrived in Virginia in 1621 aboard the James. And it's uncertain as to whether or not he arrived as an indentured servant or a slave. The records list him as Antonio, a Negro. Well, regardless of his status, he got work um, on Edward Bennett's tobacco plantation uh, near Virginia. and in March of 1622, local Tidewater Indians attacked Bennett's plantation, killing 52 people. Johnson was only uh, one of five people on the plantation who survived the attack. Wow. Excuse me? Yeah. Very interesting. like walking away from a war zone. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is what it is. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. So he got married. He had a couple of children, um, according to court documents. And At some point between 1625 and 1640, Anthony and Mary gained their freedom and moved to Virginia's eastern shore, where they purchased a modest estate. Johnson claimed 200. They raised cattle and hogs and they claimed 250 acres of land. Yes. 250 acres is a lot of land. And by 1654, Johnson's two sons, Richard and John, both owned acreage adjoining their father's land. So they had a lot of um, property. Generational wealth. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, a fire destroyed much of Johnson's pro- plantation in 1653, and they ended up um, moving to Maryland. They had to file a tax document so they could, um, you know, not have to pay on that plantation that they couldn't um, raise anything. And I think, is it him or another one? Maybe I'm getting a couple of stories confused. Yeah, he actually owned slaves. He actually had a slave, Anthony Johnson did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that is Anthony Johnson, the first land owner. <laughs> so the second one is um, the African Insurance Company. And it was the first African insurance company in 1810. And the president of this African-American-owned insurance company in Philadelphia uh, was Joseph Randolph. Um, He had a treasurer and a secretary. Now, beneficial societies were social and economic safety nets for an impoverished community. And in Philadelphia, the Free African Society was established in April of 1782. And it charged members monthly dues in order to create a pool of money from which to draw if women were widowed, a member fell sick, or to provide a Christian burial for a member who died. So that is the basis for which this African-American, this African-owned insurance company was created. And operate it. So, yep. you know, like slavery didn't end till the mid 1860s. But these this was like a predominantly Quaker population. They were surrounded by abolitionists and um, able to form a uh, subculture or culture of free blacks. Yeah. With mm-hmm. their own systems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the African-American insurance, again, it was established in 1810 and it was a for profit built. Um, business and it was built on that free African society. The third, 
I want to introduce you to is Judy W. Reed. And she is considered to be the first African-American woman to receive a United States patent. The first African-American man got his patent in 1821. Do you know what for? The man? Yeah. No, but I can tell you. No, I'll look it up. What was, go and tell us about the lady. Okay. So in January, 1884, Reed, Judy Reed applied for a patent on her dough kneader and roller. The application was for an improved design on existing dough kneaders. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, that is cool. On September 23rd, 1884, Reed received the patent number. They gave the patent number for her invention, but there's no record of her life beyond that document. So the thing about patents is the application process didn't require a person to identify their race. Mm -hmm. And the first and middle initials were used um, to disguise their gender. So it's it's possible that there were early. um, Earlier patents by black mm -hmm. Americans. But it's just unknown based on, you know, the information I just gave. And Thomas L. Jennings in uh, 1821 invented a way to dry clean clothes. Mm -hmm. 1821. Yeah. Yep, so I that's love him. That the, mm-hmm. Okay, so I love that these are businesses we were um, familiar with, yeah. um, you know, servitude, and then we turned that into inventions. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so the fourth person we'll talk about, excuse me, is Matthew Henson, and he was an American explorer, and he helped, he accompanied um, Robert Perry, who... Um, tried to reach the North Pole in 1909. Um, And even though they did not reach the North Pole, they're they're still recognized as an important contribution to scientific knowledge. So Henson was born in Maryland in 1866. His parents were three people of color who worked as sharecroppers. He experienced a lot of death um, and eventually moved to... Um, Baltimore, yeah, where he became a cabin boy on the merchant ship Katie Hines. The captain of the vessel taught Henson to read, and for the next few years, he sailed on this Katie Henson ship. And by the age of twenty, he had visited China, Japan, the Philippines, wow. France, Africa, and Russia. By 1887, Henson was working at a clothing store where he met Commander Robert E. Perry. And Mr. Perry was, Commander Perry, I'll say, was impressed by Henson's experience. So he hired him to go on a survey expedition to Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Hmm. Nicaragua. Okay. Well, the most important of Perry's exposition um, took place in 1908 to 1909, where Perry led his eighth attempt to reach the North Pole. Well, on this attempt, um, Perry got sick and Hansen had to, you know, go on, if you will. So he then proceeded to place the American flag on what he thought was the was North, the North Pole. Pole. So I'm sorry, what did he invent? Black people doing white things? <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Uh, no, I'm serious. I didn't know what you said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's an explorer. He's our first known explorer. Oh, 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 that is loaded. But that's fine. I'm going to let you rock. 
Okay, he's the first known explorer because he chose to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Foolishness. So I gotta um, get to China. I don't want to go to China for too long. I'm sorry. In nineteen twelve. Go to China. I bet you I could go right now. It'd be cheap. Go you probably you probably could. Um Henson wrote um a Negro explorer at the North Pole and then it details his experiences <laughs> on his journey. So he'll probably sorry. explain um, I'm be why he placed it. <laughs> uh, just so y'all know, Kari is still laughing, shoulders moving and everything. Okay, this is happening. Oh my goodness. So, it details his experiences on his journey. Um, uh, I, I'm hopefully explaining why. Hopefully it'll say <laughs> she turned off the camera. She's still laughing. Oh. Sorry, I'm not. I'm stupid. <laughs> He, uh, hopefully he explains what happened. Can you with move that. on to the next person? <laughs> Why he placed that pole where he thought it was. Anyway, he got a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> he and gotta... just for the record, exploring is great. But why are you risking your life? I don't understand. That's not us. Foolishness. He um he got a congressional medal of honor for his um 1909 exposition expedition excuse me so that is matthew um henson and our so, final so person from these, because of these explorers we are learning things about the earth i do like i'm not yeah. i need to be better we learn <laughs> things about the earth and that helps to improve our everyday lives yeah he, as, yeah that's they're attributing um scientific um information discovery yeah mm-hmm. for sure yeah no that's work. great mm-hmm. thank you uh first negro <laughs> on the north pole what's his name Matthew A. Henson. Sound like it. Matthew. Thanks, Maddie. Appreciate you. That fourth is the African company, um, Black Theater Troupe. And so in 1816, um, William Henry Brown, a retired West Indian steamship steward, he acquired a house on Thompson Street in lower Manhattan, New York, and he produced shows. He offered a variety of instrumental and vocal entertainments on Sunday afternoons in his tea garden. And he attracted a sizable audience from the five boroughs of New York. So um, in his shows, in 1821, he moved to Mercer and Beaker Street and into a two-story house with a spacious tea garden. And he converted the second floor into a 300-seat theater and renamed the Enterprise the African Grove Theater, opening season uh, with a performance of Richard III. Um, he did lots of Shakespeare. He did uh, Life in London, The Poor Soldier, Othello, Don Juan, Three-Fingered Jack. So he wrote and staged the first African-American play, the drama of King Shottaway. For the um, theater company, how long did that run? Let's see. It was burned down in 1823 under um, questionable suspicious circumstances. Of course, circumstances. Yeah. So he, but he would later move to London. Yeah, I love it. I love that. Thank you. And if you want great African American theater today, maybe we should publish a list on our site since that is something that interests us both but only yep. Alvin Ailey comes to mind still a great theater um but there are others I know yeah that, yeah they're um, locally anyway mm-hmm. yeah and locally oh that's a project okay yeah. great so let's take a quick break before we jump into the author and context okay okay sounds good All right. 
great. Can you give us some context and background on our author, Isabel Wilkerson? Yes, you guys, if you're a longtime listener of this show, you remember uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, part one and part two. That book was by Isabel Wilkerson. I love that book because it is a narrative of three people's lives. It's a nonfiction narrative of three people's lives um, who traveled during the the American Great Migration. And in it, we talk to our family members about why they left the South. Um, And Alexis is like, I left the South, too. She just still didn't get the concept, but she get it now. (laughs) So, and I didn't know what the great migration was. If you love us being ignorant, but then edified, please listen to that. So this is our second book. Ignorant, then edified. (laughs) That is a norm. This is like the second book by a Pulitzer Prize winning Isabel Wilkerson. And we are reading it. We talked about it, too, in our um, BookTube mm-hmm. episode on YouTube. We're like, we can't wait to read Cast. That was last year. So I don't know why it took us so long, but we're finally here. Um, so a few things about Isabel Wilkerson. She was born in 1961 in D.C., Washington, D.C. Um, and of course, we bring this out even more in our uh, The Warmth of Other Sums part one episode, but I'm just going to reintroduce you to her if you don't remember. Uh, Born in D.C., 1961, her parents were part of the Great Migration from Georgia in the southern uh, part of Virginia. She's the first black woman in the history of American journalism to win a Pulitzer Prize and the first black woman to win for individual reporting. She won for her reporting as Chicago Bureau Chief of the New York Times, um, an experience she speaks about briefly here. Uh, or at least when she was a um, writer for the Times, specifically her coverage of the 1993 Midwestern floods and her profile of a 10 year old boy who was responsible for his four siblings won her the Pulitzer. She lectured at Harvard. She served as a first professor of journalism at Princeton. Um, she served as board member of the National Arts and Journalism Program at Columbia. She is decorated, educated, all the things and an amazing writer. She has a knack for taking nonfiction facts and um, writing those into a captivating narrative. That's like her gift. So uh, that's Isabel Wilkerson. And this book that we're reading today was also um, a member, a, a book selected for Oprah's book club last year. So okay. that's how a lot of people know about it. Great. Well, let's hear a brief synopsis without spoilers before sure. I dive. Okay, so Cast is a history book somewhat like any other you'd find in a well-stocked high school classroom. The difference is that its content dissects the most embarrassing, perhaps, and evil, no doubt, parts of a country, lighting the anger and disbelief of purposely obtuse skeptics. However, it is complete with sources and none of its information is new. Nothing in here is new information. This is not discovery. This, these are facts uh, documented uh, and indisputable. Mm -hmm. It is a reminder that no matter how embarrassed or angry we become by it, history does not change. And on that note, what were your first thoughts of cast Alexis? Well, I was eager to read Cast after we read Warmth of Other Sons. I was looking forward to an explanation of the term cast. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> who do you think would enjoy reading this book, Kari? Yeah. Um, people who can handle history um, of any kind, but a specific, especially when it pertains to American history. If you're into that knowledge, then I think you'd really enjoy Cast. All right, then. Are you ready to take that deep dive? 
Sure. I will start with a content warning. We are going to talk um, deeply about subjects that include abuse, violence and assault of even the sexual nature. Uh, We're not going to wallow in these areas, but if you know anything about history, you know where this is going. Part one, typecast. So I want to start with August Landmaster. Are you familiar with who that is? Not until I (laughs) read this. Listen to this. Yeah. Okay. Um, So there's a very famous uh, photograph of people, hundreds of people standing in a crowd in Nazi Germany um, saluting. And there is one man not saluting. His name is August Lamester. In that moment, only he is on the right side in the eyes of history. And he is alone. He was in love with a Jewish woman we know now whom law forbade him to marry. As an Aryan man, he was tied to the fate of the Jews by love. And this position enabled him to see what others chose not to see. He would like to believe or we would like to believe that we'd be him in that photo. While everyone is supporting Nazi Germany, we'd be the one person standing out. And truthfully, some of us would be. But what does it take to be that man today? And that's the question uh, we're open with. Now, I'll also uh, read directly from the book for a moment, just um, the definition of caste as Isabel Wilkerson is applying it to American uh, human relations. She says, um, for many people, including those we might see as good and kind people, um, they could be castes, meaning invested in keeping the hierarchy as it is or content to do nothing to change it, but not racist in the classical sense, not active and openly hateful of this or that group. Actual racists, actual haters would be defi- by definition castes as their hatred demands that those they perceive as beneath them know and keep their place in the hierarchy. She then goes on to say in everyday terms, It is not racism that prompts a white shopper in a clothing store to go up to a random black or brown person who is also shopping and to ask for a sweater in a different size or for a white guest at a party to ask a black or brown person who is also a guest to fetch them a drink, as happened to Barack Obama as a state senator, or even perhaps a judge to sentence a subordinate caste person for an offense for which a dominant caste person might not even be charged. It's the autonomic, unconscious, reflexive response to expectations from a thousand imaging inputs and neurological societal downloads that affix people to certain roles based upon what they look like and what they historically have been assigned to or the characteristics and stereotypes by which they have been categorized. No ethnic or racial category is immune to the messaging we all receive about the hierarchy and thus no one escapes its consequences. So what this means is when you say, um, a black explorer, that's something white people do. You are further um, following the caste system. You're saying that people in this place shouldn't do this or it's not fitting for them to do this. And you're ignorant, Kari. <laughs> Moving on. A shrinking caste. The dominating caste is shrinking for the first time in the country's history. OK, a man from the lowest caste was running the country. And the rumble beneath the surface was getting louder and bolder. And then a new candidate was on the horizon. The last hope for the ruling caste in the eyes of many. Mm. An old order was returning, some hoped, and violence spread throughout the country. This violence included the deadliest year due to mass shootings in modern American history. To the world, it seemed the landscape had changed overnight. Overnight? Absolutely not. 
So like a virus able to mutate and hibernate until awakening, there is a history going back generations we need not pretend doesn't exist. Another illustration she presents. Any old homeowner knows that um, not checking the basement after a storm will not stop any possible flooding. The cracks in the foundation that we overlook on a daily basis or no longer see because we see them all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't go away simply because we're ignoring them. The holes in the foundation still exist and the damage they cause still, you know, exists. Homeowners must grab the courage to face what they rather not see. They can't say I have nothing to do with the damage to the foundation. I didn't even own the home when it was damaged. Why should it be my problem? This may be true. Perhaps the owner was not even born when the damage started, but the awkward, even unthinkable can become normal if we're not careful. And just because we didn't start a problem doesn't mean we aren't affected by it. We all live in this house today and must examine its structure. Very good, Isabel. I mean, Miss Wilkinson. Um, So cast defined. Now, in the beginning part of this book, what did you think, Alexis? I felt like she defined cast over and over again and presented many many illustrations. And um, they were all saying the same thing in different ways. Am I? Um, Yeah, but I found that um, helpful in providing clarity of what cast really meant. I agree. I didn't appreciate it while I was reading it. Because I was like, oh, I got to finish this book for the podcast. And it's saying the same thing in different ways. But in hindsight, you need that. That's what mm-hmm. examining history means. Yep. Um, because this history is, an is example the same. Of it. This is an example of it. This is, And it just helps you understand it more clearly. Yeah. If Sorry. you don't even know what cast is. I mean, what did you think cast was before you opened this book? I, I didn't think about it. I didn't mm-hmm. think about it enough. So, I, And I only applied it to um, India. And untouchables specifically. So she is taking this system that many red people are really familiar with and applying it very logically to what they see every day. But we don't we don't. Yeah. Yeah. We don't think of it like this sometimes. So cast defined cast is the infrastructure of our divisions put in place to maintain a 400 year old system, period. Um, Defined, she says it's an artificial construction, a fixed and embedded ranking of human value based on ancestors and traits. It is rigid and yet arbitrary. Caste and race are not the same. Caste is the bones, the infrastructure. Race is the skin, the superficial and fluid. Mm. What people look like, the race they've been assigned is the visible cue to their caste. Oh, this is a great, we should put together a list of like books we've read pertaining to American history. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we've we've read not just books about um, slavery and post slavery, um, like the Reformation period. And we've we've read those books, but we've also read Hamilton and a few others that I think would go brilliantly in this list. And I know we have a lot of um, listeners. Look at me. Oh, we got millions of people that (laughs) listen to us around the world. (laughs) And sometimes as an adult, you need a refresher or a new look at history, world history. Mm, this would be a great book on that list. So anyway, um, so uh, again, your your race signals people to put you in a certain caste. They're like your race or your skin color, I should say, tells people, "Hey, I'm part of this caste." In most situations, and what's it about? It's about power, resources, and even the value of life. So caste is the difference between living and not living for many people. Sheesh. 
And that's why it's so serious. Caste isn't specific to America, of course. The most famous caste system um, systems include Nazi-era Germany and the Indian caste system, specifically the untouchable class, which I was familiar with. When Martin Luther King visited India, he was introduced to a school of students as a fellow untouchable, mm. a term he had never applied to himself, but really helped him to rethink where he stood in American society. And he was even a little offended by that, too, wasn't he? Was he? Yeah. I didn't get offended. I got shocked. Mm. Like, oh, I'm here to learn about y'all broken system and apply it to the broken system I see back home. But you mean, you know, I would I can relate to this on a deeper level. Mm. Like, really? Okay. That's what I got from it. But maybe I don't know. Um, so this is one of my favorite sentences in the book. And it goes like this. Cast makes distinctions where God has made none. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cast makes distinctions where God has made none. Part two, of course, slavery. So Wilkerson gives a great summary of how not just race in America started, but why. And if you want a deeper dive just into this subject, what book would you recommend, Alexis? Stamped. Stamped. And we do cover that. Um, and there are three versions now. There's a version if you really want to get into it, which we don't, of course. There's a version of if you kind of want to get into it, which we read. And then there's a version for kids. Mm -hmm. So everybody can be educated. Again, that's stamped by Ibram X. Kendi. Moving on. <clears throat> At one time, slaves existed of all skin tones. And most of us know this. But there was always a chance. And we're speaking. Oh, by the way, I know some people are like, well, the Africans had slaves. Well, in um, ancient Israel, they had slaves. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is all very true. Sure. Good job. However, <laughs> the specific brand of American slavery is unique for its cruelty and violence. Mm -hmm. And so we're just explaining how we got here and um, how people felt justified in treating other humans worse than they treated animals. So, yes, there was a time when slaves existed of all skin tones, even in America. But there was always a chance or I shouldn't say America in the original colonies. OK, but there's always a chance that white slaves could escape and blend into the higher caste. And because of their visible distinction, resistance to disease and strength, black slaves were preferred. Additionally, also, the crops they were familiar with from back home were foreign to the Europeans. So the Europeans needed someone familiar with these crops who could grow them. And so black people's all of this stuff they knew and then their physical strength worked against them, I'll say in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and the English needed black slaves to cultivate their crops and they looked different and couldn't run away and blend into the dominant class. So there we go. So there you go. They became not only slaves, which have existed throughout history, but captives captives to untold horrors and abuse. This arrangement made lords of all whites. It made um, antebellum America. Um, it gave all the white people a like regal class to be a part of. It was an extreme original form of slavery where the man was used as a machine. Animals literally had more rights than African descending humans whipped, castrated and sexually assaulted legally. That is what the U.S. was for longer than it was not. Now, this was eye opening to me. Next year, the year 2022 will be the first year that the U.S. will be an independent nation for as long as slavery lasted on its soil. And what that means is slavery uh, pre-exists 
the July 4th, <laughs> um, the American Revolution. And so with the original colonies, as these people who formed the colonies were fleeing from their original homes because of um, prejudice against their faith and other reasons, they took with them <laughs> um, human captives and treated them terribly as if they didn't know what it was like to be a human treated terribly. Right. Once 2111 comes, then the American population as a whole will be have been free unitedly for longer than a portion of it was enslaved. And I had to listen to that like a couple of times because I'm like, wait, 2011? Because that's that. 2111. 2111. 2111. In 2022. Yes. That's what she said. That's what the facts are. We talked about how I mean, even in this episode, the 1980s, maybe 1986, slavery ended. And then the 50s, um, Jim Crow was dismantled, at least on paper. And um, that's real recent. It is. <laughs> All of that is real recent. It is. When did Alabama history. stop outlawing mixed race marriage? 2000. <laughs> Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and in this book, it brings out how some people still wasn't with it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So in the uh, race episode, uh, one job, the one race job. episode, that's like every episode of this show. Now we gonna get out the history books because we tied. We are. But- I am. I'm tied. <laughs> tied. Tied. Shoot. But in one drop, we talk about how Alabama outlawed outlawed mixed race marriages until like the year 2000, at least on paper. Um, and I say, you know, but it's not like you were going to be arrested in 1995 for being a couple in a mixed race marriage. It's just that they didn't see it as necessary to remove it from the books. Mm -hmm. I am wrong because some people actively wanted to keep it on the books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So not all things legal are right, you guys. Um, So moving on, right? We already know this. No one was white until they came to America. And this is true today. Yeah. Once they arrived, they adopted the behavior of the caste system. For example, Irish immigrants fleeing persecution from the British came to um, the Americas and were drafted into a war that they didn't cause and from which they didn't benefit from. Great history on this in the warmth of other suns. They couldn't fight back uh, the ruling class, the the dominant caste. Uh, the ruling whites, their recourse was to burn and kill anything black. And for uh, facts about this, Google Cicero or whatever. Um, So they, again, their recourse was to burn and kill anything black, the group over which they accepted their superiority because they had adopted this caste system. Um, Thus, they proved their admittance into the dominant caste. (laughs) There's a great comment here about how there are no blacks in Africa. None of us are ourselves. Yeah, that's a great comment. There's some really great statements in this book. Yeah. Um, because black and white are constructs, at least the way we understand it, of an American uh, social hierarchy. It doesn't exist anywhere else. That's why there are no quote unquote blacks as we see blacks in Africa. And no real whites anywhere else. None of us are ourselves. The container we have built for you in this section, the um, she describes the overarching rule was that the lowest caste was to remain low at all costs. For example, if a train crash was reported, the newspaper would say seven women died, four men and eight Negro. 
All of this is conditioning to look at the lower class as not human. Black men could not be addressed as sir, for example. Black women could not be addressed as missus, but by their first name, no matter their age. So young white children would scream out, you know, anime when they're referring to an old uh, black person, black woman that they're familiar with. And the disrespect was not lost on the lower caste. Mm -hmm. Uh, She even describes one man who named his daughter Mrs. (laughs) Whereas he wanted to give no one uh, the choice whether to call her Mrs. or not. Mm -hmm. And his wife was down with that. So Um, this makes me, if I may, um, Mm -hmm. think about respect within the black community today. It is not Mm -hmm. common at all to call an older, more mature adult um, adult by their first name, still not. So that makes, that's what that made me think of. I see why that was ingrained in us. As as for my family, we called our grandmother grandmother. We called our aunt aunt so and so. It was never, and we still do today. You don't get a certain age and get to just release that. It is you are. This is your name <laughs> and title. Um, But I don't think Southern white people, I don't think their children refer to them by their first name either. There is a respectability politics that's inherent with the South. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, you also can shake hands with black uh, men or women in public. It was too dignified an act. Each of us is in a container of some kind in this caste system. And in the caste system, the label is often out of sync with the contents of the container. Mm -hmm. The container is then put on the wrong shelf. And this system and continuing this system hurts people and institutions in ways we may not fully realize. Back before Amazon and iPhones, I was a national correspondent at the New York Times based in Chicago. I had decided to do a lighthearted piece about Chicago's Magnificent Mile, a prime stretch of Michigan Avenue that had always been the city's showcase. But now, some big names from New York and elsewhere were about to take up residence. As I planned the story, I reached out to them for interviews. Everyone I called was thrilled to describe their foray into Chicago and to sit down with the Times. The interviews went as expected until the last one. I had arrived a few minutes early to make sure we could start on time, given the deadline I was facing. The boutique was empty at this quiet hour of the late afternoon. The manager's assistant told me the manager would be arriving soon from another appointment. I told her I didn't mind the wait. I was happy to get another big name in the piece. She went to a back corner as I stood alone in a wide open showroom. A man in a business suit and overcoat walked in, harried and breathless. From the far corner, she nodded that this was him. So I went up to introduce myself and get started. He was out of breath, had been rushing, coat still on, checking his watch. Oh, I can't talk to you now, he said, brushing past me. I'm very, very busy. I'm running late for an appointment. I was confused at first. Might he have made another appointment for the exact same time? Why would he schedule two appointments at once? There was no one else in the boutique but the two of us and his assistant in back. I think I'm your appointment, I said. No, this is a very important appointment with the New York Times, he said, pulling off his coat. I can't talk with you now. I'll have to talk with you some other time. But I'm with the New York Times, I told him, pen and notebook in hand. I talk with you on the phone. 
I'm the one who made the appointment with you for 4.30. What's the name? Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times. How do I know that? He shot back, growing impatient. Look, I said I don't have time to talk with you right now. She'll be here any minute. He looked to the front entrance and again at his watch. But I am Isabel. We should be having the interview right now. He let out a sigh. What kind of identification do you have? Do you have a business card? I've been interviewing all day, I told him. I happen to be out of them now. What about ID? You have a license on you? I shouldn't have to show you my license, but here it is. He gave it a cursory look. You don't have anything that says the New York Times on it? Why would I be here if I weren't here to interview you? All of this time has passed. We've been standing here and no one else has shown up. She must be running late. I'm going to have to ask you to leave so I can get ready for my appointment. I left and walked back to the Times Bureau, dazed and incensed, trying to figure out what had just happened. This was the first time I had ever been accused of impersonating myself. His cast notions of who should be doing what in society had so blinded him that he dismissed the idea that the reporter he was anxiously awaiting, excited to talk to, was standing right in front of him. It seemed not to occur to him that a New York Times national correspondent could come in a container such as mine, despite every indication that I was she. The story ran that Sunday. Because I had not been able to interview him, he didn't get a mention. It would have amounted to a nice bit of publicity for him. But the other interviews made it unnecessary in the end. I sent him a clip of the piece along with the business card that he had asked for. To this day, I won't step inside that retailer. I will not mention the name, not because of censorship or a desire to protect any company's reputation, but because of our cultural tendency to believe that if we just identify the presumed to be rare offending outlier, we will have rooted out the problem. The problem could have happened any place because the problem is, in fact, at the root. The word race likely is derived from the Spanish word raza, used to refer originally to uh, caste or quality of horses. It's a man-made invention with no basis in science. And this is where um, Isabel Wilkerson is again defining caste in a different way. She goes on to explain how the term Caucasian is relatively new and derives from eugenics. A German professor measuring skulls was enamored of a particular skull that had come into his possession from the Caucasus Mountains of Russia. To him, it was the most beautiful of all the skulls in his possession. So he called all Europeans Caucasian and it stuck. During a citizenship trial in 1914, um, there was a debate whether regarding if a Syrian could be a Caucasian. Mm-hmm and thus white, and an expert witness in the trial proclaimed, never has a single head, referring to the skull, done more harm to science. Mm. Another great statement, race is not real. We accept the illogic of race because it is what we've been told. We see a person with skin whiter than most white people and reason that they most definitely are not white by the slight shape of their eyes and because maybe their great grandparents were born in Japan. We see a person with a skin tone deeper than most black Americans and reason that they are absolutely not black because their hair texture isn't kinky and their great grandparents came from Madagascar. A child has not learned these nonsensical ideas until adults teach it to them. This erroneous logic of the American caste system. Color is a fact. Race is a social construct. Americans cling to race as the unschooled cling to superstition. That's a quote. 
the human impulse to create hierarchies predates slavery and race. We know that. So it's not as if America is inherently bad or worse than any other country that's ever existed. That's not at all what's being said. This is a book about the caste system of um, the states. I just want to reiterate that because um, some people feel like this book or history is biased. Um, and it should shed light on how all countries, that's not what this is doing. Um, and this kind of washing away the facts, we see it over and over again in the books we read, no matter what they're about. If people are uncomfortable with the nonfiction historical fact, they'll say, yeah, but this country was doing this. And that was also bad. And I'm not just speaking about American history. All countries have some ugly Absolutely. underbelly mm -hmm. that people choose to ignore right. um, oftentimes. The solution is not then to put it in the light of the other atrocities committed by other countries. Look directly at the facts that this book is dissecting and don't expect a book, I would say, to carry the weight of the world in its pages. Right. That's <laughs> like, know? that's, you know, how people be like, um, you don't do this or that right. Well, neither does so-and-so. Well, we're not talking about oh, so-and-so. Thank <laughs> you. We're not talking Thank about so-and-so. This is who we talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So let us stick to the subject. I remember there was um, something I was trying to weed out of my personality and a friend who loved me very much was like, but girl, we all got things to work on. And I was like, OK, but if a murderer tells me not to murder, are they wrong? Am I to say, yeah, but you murdering? No. So it's right. No, no I need to do what's I need to be better. Yeah, and just <laughs> you know if I, mean? I could throw one more, you know how sometimes yeah. your friends will be like, Oh, I feel so fat today. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And then the other, the person that may be quote unquote fat will say, well, what am I? Well, I'm yeah, not you talking fat, what about am I? you. I'm talking <laughs> about me and how I feel about myself. Let's not make mm -hmm. this about you. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. I love that because the, then you're saying you can't never feel the way you feel because in the light of me, it is inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, but that's not it. I so hope this is. Can we just yeah, deal with the history is right now? <laughs> so I hope we've uh, made it clear why <laughs> we're just talking about American history right now. I don't know. We're all over the place. Y'all, it's early. Mm. Part four, the R word. Ooh. Ooh wow. <laughs> while, <laughs> while people might admit or even call out xenophobia or sexism, racism is radioactive and no one wants to understand that word anymore. Um, it's been reduced to like a feeling and no one can be racist in the eyes of some unless they admit to it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like um, if you hang racist emblems, support racist decisions and say or do racist things, things that show the superior caste acting against the non-dominant caste, but no one has the right to call you racist, then what is racism? <laughs> <laughs> I am the least racist person you'll meet, says the extremist. So that's where we are. Cast is a series of practiced um, like uh, rituals, routines that have with time become normal. It is not from hatred always. So when we think of racism, we think, well, in order, well, we don't. Well, I don't, but some people think in order to be a racist person, you have to be hateful and evil. Um, but look at it in the sense of caste. It's not always from hatred. It's more often just following the status quo. It's like, this is the way it's always been. And why should I know better? This is the way we do things here. Mm -hmm. It's often the unconscious following and sustaining of the status quo. It doesn't come always from an evil place. 
I was recently reading, Alexis, how important it is to fight against the wrong thinking we've learned via our upbringings and culture, Mm -hmm. all of us. And I think that really pertains here also. So we have to look at the way we were raised uh, with a skeptical eye and be like, you know, is that right? Just because everyone seems to do it. Mm -hmm. Part five, the eight pillars of caste. Um, Now, this is where Isabel really breaks down well uh, the system of caste. Right. And she takes eight pillars. We'll just run through them now and uh, have a little discussion. So pillar number one, divine will and the laws of nature, Um, both in the Indian caste system and in the U.S. caste system, people feel like holy text is used to. Well, holy text is used to justify their treatment of those of the uh, lowest class. So people feel like um, Africans and black Americans are the descendants of Ham and Ham's generations were cursed by God. And so any evil you inflict upon them is just um, God working vicariously through you or just the fulfillment of prophecy. And there's something similar in an Indian uh, caste system. Part two, of course, this is false. Part two uh, or not part two, pillar number two. Here we go. Pillar number two, endogamy and the control of marriage and mating. Um, I had a note here I wanted to bring out. I have so many notes in this book. Um, So this is the thing. Since the beginning of time, (laughs) I shouldn't say since the beginning of time, but since the transatlantic slavery uh, started, uh, white men were um, assaulting or sleeping with uh, the consent and without the consent of African women. There is a few instances of uh, white men who were prosecu- prosecuted uh, by, I'm thinking colonial now American, before we became officially the United States of America, um, and were publicly whipped for, and I quote, abusing themselves with black, a black woman. Um, so these endogamy laws and the law, laws controlling uh, marriage and mating are not about crossing races they're about giving dignity to people with brown skin in this case where the white man was prosecuted and whipped there was something about his relationship uh, where the black woman seemed dignified so perhaps they had a relationship this was found out and he was publicly made an example of where both white people and black slaves were called to view this whipping And the message was, if this is what we'll do to one of our own, think of what we'll do to you. So it wasn't illegal to um, sexually assault a black American, but it was illegal to give them any dignity in that relationship. This this is um, this is the same story that was represented in the one drop. Yeah. Account. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Yep. And that actually worked both ways. So white people would be white people would face punishment from um, the ruling caste if they were involved in such an arrangement where they were in a romantic relationship with a black person that worked for white men and white uh, women. Um, And in one drop, she even mentions the example of a white woman who was enslaved. Yeah. Because that's not funny. I don't know. I'm laughing. I couldn't find any back up on that. I couldn't find any um, supportive information. 
Um, not that I don't believe it's true. I just couldn't find anything. And that, again, is from one drop, not from cast. But that story is the same, um, the way colonial America was set up. Okay, pillar number four, purity versus pollution. Again, this is something we talked about in one drop. Um, in the U.S. Uh, version of casteism slash racism, um, in this case, you can use them synonymously because uh, the outcome was the same. So if a black body, for example, swam in a pool during Jim Crow or, of course, before then also, that person would either be prosecuted or the pool would be drained and refilled so that uh, white people could then enjoy it. Is there anything you wanted to bring out about purity versus pollution? Oh, that was the um, the account of the young boy who that was went sad. To play. Yeah, that was really sad. I don't remember the age of the young man, mm-hmm. the young boy, but he was on a team of white team. He had a team of white team. Say it again. <laughs> he had he was on a team with a bunch of whites. Right. Mm-hmm. And they went to the park to celebrate a win. He couldn't be let in the park because he was black. Yeah. And they were there was. It was the lake, right? It was, was it the lake? Oh, I thought it was a pool. Like okay, they had so won a game a and they were celebrating. So he was yeah. playing, I thought it was baseball with his team. They had won a championship. And as mm-hmm. a way to celebrate, all the parents took the children to the pool. And the pool authorities made that one black player, the one black child, sit outside of a fence and watch everyone else play. And the parents were incensed about it, too. They wanted him to play. Yeah, they wanted they wanted him to play. So they kept pleading with them to let him play. People would go and talk to the um, young boy, but he could he wasn't allowed in to play. And then at some point he had all the white kids get out of the water. The authority did. The pool authority. And then he put the black boy kid, into like a the raft black boy and a raft and kind of walked him around the pool once or twice. And he was like, the only reason we're able to do this is because you're in a raft. And he said, whatever you do, do not the touch boy. the water. Like in his life going forward, this was really hard for him. And I can imagine how that would be. That's just, it's terrible. Yeah. It's a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a quote here I'll pull out a young dominant caste man so a white man raised in depression era south had been taught the rules of the caste system and adhered to them as expected so he had black cooks black uh, nurses who he would touch because they were in a position of servitude but when he went off into the war and um, he went up north in the mid 20th century and joined the military he had to confront confront the mythologies of his upbringing. He said, strange things pop up at us like gargoyles when we are liberated from our delusions. Every time he reached the point where he had to shake hands with a black person, he felt an automatic revulsion that had been trained into him. He called it a madness because it made no sense. And he saw this in himself. Each Mm. time I shook hands with a Negro, I felt an urge to wash my hands. Every rational impulse, all that I considered best in myself, struggled against this urge. But the hand that had touched the dark skin had a will of its own and would not be dissuaded from signaling it was unclean. That is what I mean by madness, end quote training Hmm. pillar number five occupational hierarchy uh the jadis and the mudsill do you remember this part uh no but i do have a note on it and i can't um read the note so basically um this 
This caste system also poured into the occupations that people were allowed to fill. So black people were not allowed to fill a role that uh, white people may have seen too dignified. Um, they had to be in servitude or in um, with a lot of actually not just black people with a lot of outcasts, uh, casts. Um, they were put in the role of entertainment because that was seen as demeaning, especially comedy. And so they thrived in this entertainment field. And likewise, today we see a lot of entertainers, mm -hmm. um, successful um, outlier entertainers are black. And that includes um, on television and movies and in uh, sports, of course. And so one of the first people to win an, an Academy Award, I think it is. Yeah, um, uh, the Mamie from Gone Patty. with the Wind. Hattie McDaniel, mm -hmm. which was in 1940, um, she was born in California. She didn't know how to speak that. Yes. I, I saw, you know, all that like uh, almost like a character of a person. Mm -hmm. So this is important. A lot of what we see about black people in Antebellum South in movies is a fiction created by the producers of those movies. Right. So the actress didn't know how to speak like that. She wasn't raised to speak like that. They told her, well, this is what black people sound like in the South. At least that's how we want them to look in our movies. So sound like that. Um, so mimic this accent. Talk like this. Bulge your eyes out. Do things like this that mimic like blackface and um, like characters of what a human really is. So this is damaging because those art forms have lasted. Yes. <laughs> and people yeah. still believe those. that's like documented fact. That's how black people must have been in the antebellum south and as a person that grew up on a lot of the white movies um i would it was a i was a fan of that movie mm -hmm. gone with the wind i watched it um i love old movies but they didn't have black people in them <laughs> they didn't have black people in them and so to see that what else am i to think that's mm -hmm. what black women are like right so you have that mentality. It's very damaging. It's mm -hmm. quite damaging to have that um, experience where that is how essentially you are being portrayed in the media and the um, on TV and our firms. Yeah. Falsely portrayed. Right. Yeah. Pillar number six, dehumanization and stigma. Um, so this is the part of the caste system where the lower class is made to be less than human in the eyes of the dominant class. This is um, this manifests itself in things like scientific experimentation. We may be familiar with the way uh, twins were studied under Nazi regime. Um, but what about the way also black Americans were dissected? James Marion Sims would later be heralded as the founding father of gynecology. He came to his discoveries by acquiring enslaved women in Alabama and conducting savage surgeries that often ended in disfigurement or death. He refused to administer anesthesia, saying vaginal surgery on them was not painful enough to justify the trouble. Instead, he administered morphine only after surgery, noting that it relieves the scalding of the urine and, as Washington writes, weakened the will to resist repeated procedures. A Louisiana surgeon perfected the cesarean section by experimenting on the enslaved women he had access to in the 1830s. Others later learned how to remove ovaries and bladder stones. They performed these slave cabin experiments in search of breakthroughs for their white patients, who would one day undergo surgery in hospitals and under the available anesthesia. 
Their total control of black bodies gave them unfettered access to the anatomy of live subjects that would otherwise be closed to them. Sims, for example, would force a woman to disrobe and get on her knees on a table. He would then allow other doctors to take turns with the speculum to force her open and invite leading men in town and apprentices in to see for themselves. He later wrote, I saw everything as no man had seen before. We would all like to believe that we would resist the impulse to inflict such horror on fellow members of our own species, and some of us very likely would, but not as many as we might like to believe. In America, a culture of cruelty crept into the minds, made violence and mockery seem mundane and amusing, built as it was into the games of chance at carnivals and county fairs well into the 20th century. Things um, included like building an immune system to empathy, she calls it. Things like um, an attraction called the Coon Dip, in which fairgoers hurled projectiles at live African-Americans. Um, and games of this nature. We don't have to go into detail, but all of this helped to ingrain even from a child's age on up through adulthood that blacks were not humans. They don't feel pain like we feel pain. Right. And this is, is this also the chapter where they talked about the young girl staring at the, up at the um, black man who had been hung and just, it, in it wonderment, like she yeah. just saw a new pony, but she was looking at a dead body. And then it talks about um, an old actor who was in attendance at one of the mm, most. That's the one. That's the one. Oh, at one of the most, the grossest, uh, most violent documented lynchings. And that forever changed his mindset. He being of the dominant class and a child still felt it was wrong. Um, and so he went on to play like the moral compass in a lot of movies he um he starred in or created i don't remember his name do you remember his name henry fonda oh there we go see you would know because i watched all those movies <laughs> <laughs> so. so did you see that in the characters he tried to portray he yeah. was like the moral compass he yeah. said the seeing that lynching affected him for the rest of his life mm -hmm. he was disgusted even as a child um and i think this really speaks to how um demeaning it was for both blacks and whites because you are making everyone less than human. You are telling a dominant cast that these lower cast members aren't human, but you're also making the, making the dominant cast cruel or you're giving room for them to be yep. inhumanely cruel to fellow humans. And um, that bleeds into other aspects of their lives, how they treat each other, you know, the systems they create. So. Pillar number seven, terror as enforcement, cruelty as a means of control. And here she really um, gives a very detailed account of how Nazi Germany, before um, establishing its laws based on uh, race and ethnicity, studied and admired the um, systems already put in place by uh, the Americans. Before inflicting evil on Jewish citizens, Nazi Germany studied the caste system of America. There's a man named Madison Grant, and he was like really big into eugenics. Um, and some presidents were like considered his closest friends. Uh, he argued that inferior people should be sterilized and quarantined in a rigid system of eliminating worthless race types. He published The Passing of the Great Race. Hitler wrote him a personal note of gratitude saying, this book is my Bible. Mm. 
And then I wanted, um, I did have some other quotes I wanted to bring in, but we're running out of time. But this one I want to include um, because I have seen some conversations saying this book is biased, cast um, that we're reading today. However, I will say that the nothing in it is new again. Um, and this information you can find from a variety of sources. If you find it hard, a hard pill to swallow, maybe for whatever reason, from Isabel Wilkerson, perhaps find it from a source that you can accept. <laughs> for example, um, historian Edwin Black wrote an article in The Atlantic, and I'll quote him now. He says Hitler proudly told his comrades how closely he followed American eugenic legislation. Now that we know the laws of heredity, he told a fellow Nazi, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped beings from coming into the world. I have studied with interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would in all probability be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. Um, and he has a lot of quotes out there about how much he admired the American caste system um, and how much his fellow Nazis in, in, admired it. One day in June, in a meeting between 17 Nazis, for example, they sat down to outline the race rules of this new Germany under Hitler's rule. Their model was America. They admired the Jim Crow, Crow laws that followed slavery, and they mirrored policies under their regime from the foreign example. Uh, where they drew the line, however, what they thought was just too rigid was the one drop rule. Amen, Sam. They thought that was too rigid. It didn't make sense to them that someone with an Aryan parent and a Jewish parent would be denied their Aryan background. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, of course, in this country, if you had one millionth of <laughs> black blood in you, your great, 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 great grandma was a Negro because she was assaulted, we'll say, uh, then you are black <laughs> uh, one time in this country. That's how I was seen. I also thought it was interesting that he said um, they were surprised that, and I, I can't believe I don't have it bookmarked, but they were surprised that um, America could be held in such high esteem given the past that they had. Yeah. Or no, not the past, the current systems that it was operating and they were also surprised that um jews weren't considered colored giving their obvious um what did they call it inferiority yeah it, um, so. but the 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 their racial their history of um slavery that's what he was he was talking about that as well with that history behind them how could they be held up? That's like, you my hero, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's like, if I can make myself look that great. Yeah, if America can be seen as the leaders of the free world, then what? how much more so should Germany be able to hold the same place, if not higher? Right. Um, so that was the thinking. And there are great sources here. Moving on. Pillar number eight. Is this the last pillar? It is. Okay. Inherent superiority versus inherent inferiority. And now we can go back to the movies and films of, um, that are featuring antebellum America. Um, it's interesting that usually the women are seen as waif, um, very, very, very pale skin. Um, that is the standard for beauty and black women in these uh, movies were even documented as having to put on pad padding mm -hmm. to their bodies. If it like seemed like they weren't uh, like obese, they wanted to make them obese because that's what a black woman was in the mind of like 
the movie makers. Exactly. And all of that bled into our culture, into how we see the old Mamie of the South and vicariously black women in general. There's a quote here from the book. She says, um, it implanted into our minds the inherent superiority and beauty, deservedness and intellect of one group over the other. All right. So that is part one of Cass. Um, we don't need to take a break and give our final verdict because we haven't finished the book and we really haven't finished it in real time, you guys. In real time. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll pick up next week at part four, the tentacles of Cast through the end of the book. Is there yeah. anything you want to um, bring out? Nope, I don't want to bring out nothing. <laughs> so did you feel like this book weighed on you heavily? Yes, it did weigh on me heavily. Talk more about that. Why? Uh, just the the description of violence. Yeah, it's well documented, but to actually hear it and read it. And I, I just was like, I felt oppressed and it, <laughs> I felt heavy. And yeah. it just like... I can't listen to another bad thing that has affected black people or people in general, the mm-hmm. Jews, the, mm-hmm. um, what Indian it, what it, the Indian cast. I, it's just hard. The violence associated with so much violence, this, this caste system, racism is just, it's too much. It's too much. It's too much. One thing I thought was interesting is during a certain president's term, uh, there was a study that came out that showed the dominant class was shrinking for the first time in history. And it wasn't shrinking because people weren't um, creating children or having families. It was shrinking from things like suicide and um, drug overdoses, alcoholism, uh, preventable things. And she called it the dying from the end of an illusion. Seeing Mm. this illusion of the dominant class be destroyed was literally killing people who could not take it. And so when someone stepped in and said, well, we can be like we were in the old days again, there's hope. Then a lot of people really clung to that and they felt like we'll be on top again and my life will be worth something. So I think that also shows how a caste system um, causes harm, not just to the lower class, but even to the top. And it's an illusion dying from the end of an illusion. Sad stuff. Yeah, well, that that is um, that's a lot. It's still a lot. It's gonna be a lot. When I get <laughs> it's to gonna the be last. a lot next week. But mm-hmm. you know, we gonna make it upbeat, sad, depressing, but upbeat. Uh, so whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Lit Society. <laughs> we look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Uh-huh. Lit Society is brought to you by me, Alexis Honoria, and. Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for doing that, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, because we love you too. And if you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, Read something. something. Now, how was your week, shoot? It was Do great. Do I want to know? <laughs> it was great. Um, I remember last week I was talking about how y'all need to get y'all a friend that cook for you and your man, like my friend Alexis. <laughs> and I just want to say, I've been using your Tupperware, girl. I don't know if you're going to get it back. <laughs> it's great. Actually, you can have that. They're too big for me to use. You can have them, really. I've had them. Do y'all see this?
is a real friend on the show. <laughs> and it's something else I want to say really quick. Friendship Why? is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> because I was just thinking about my lovely, loving friends and how your friends, you know, we always say, um, what's our what's our tagline on the show? Join lifelong BFFs. That's hilarious. We're not BFFs. We're family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we not blood related, but I don't actually I only use BFF because it like sounds good in the whole marketing. <laughs> But I just want to give a shout out to your friends. I'm not trying to steal Alexis. I know y'all love her. We all love her. Shoot. They've been harassing me and I feel like it's now my time to come forward. Uh-oh. I ain't trying to uh, take her. Shoot. I yes, am though. People don't understand. Family, I am though. <laughs> family. We family. But that's okay. That's and okay. And you feel that way, I'm sure, with a lot of your friends. Cause they mm-hmm. I mean, they are brothers and sisters born for when there is distress. They yeah. raise you up out they the do. dirt. Friends. They really do. Oh, friends. Really oh, I friends. love them. And with that, we're gonna move on. <laughs> oh, Thank we you. ain't talked about what we I don't know why I'm talking so much. Here, let yeah. me mute my mic. You feel, um, I guess, inspired. We're talking about history. That's your thing. I yeah, guess. this book filled me with so much joy. <laughs> Ugh. Okay. Disgust. <laughs> but I can tell you a story. Listen, mm-hmm. you remember this mm-hmm. week my um, my uh, fire detector, fire smoke detector was yeah. beeping. <laughs> so we do this. I'm sorry. I got to give a backstory because this is our friend. Now, you know, and don't nobody listen to this show, but our friends and our mamas. And our mamas. Well, I don't know if my mom do, so. She do. I be seeing her. <laughs> um, yeah. So we do this volunteer work pretty regularly. And because of COVID, we are on Zoom. Yeah. And Alexis has been, have you ever been on Zoom and one everyone's mic, first of all, is on for no reason. And then one person I will not change. <laughs> one person will not change the battery and they smoke detector. So especially if you have your earbuds in, it's like every like two minutes, it's like a peacock all in your ear. I I barely hear it. So I've mentioned it to her in front of people in hopes that I would shame her into changing her battery. Y'all, Alexis cannot be shamed. And then she'll take it as a personal challenge. Like it don't bother me. So it can't bother nobody. (laughs) (laughs) My thing is, what's wrong with your nervous system that you are okay living with this peacock? In your it's, smoke detector. It's low. It's low. It's okay, girl, really go ahead and tell the rest of your story. We about two hours into the episode. And so if anyway, this your first time listening, <laughs> it's not usually like this. I don't know not, what it is. We, we're we postponing getting to the book because we're scared. <laughs> no, it's a okay, scary, go ahead. scary book. Anyway, I, you know, I ordered it. It came on Wednesday. I ordered a battery and I called the maintenance guy and I said, you know, I tried to take it off the wall to change the battery. And I called the maintenance guy. I said, hey, can you come and help me take this off? And he came in. He was like, oh, I'm just going to give you a new one. So he went and he took the thing off and he put it on my um, on my TV table. okay? Okay, And then he left and he said, I'll come back. You home today. Right. I'll come back and I'll put up the new one. He came back. He put up the new one. And it was still beeping. What? I was like, what is going on? It's just beeping. I was like, wow. That is Maybe really he stole something. it from another unit. So that happened to us too. And I just think the battery wasn't new. So I put a new one in it or my husband did. And it's been cool since. Well, yeah. So then I was walking past the TV table 
and the smoke detector, the old one, fell on the floor. And guess what? What? The beeping stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and you thought it was the new one. I thought it was the new one. You got to get eight hours every night. (laughs) I was trying. 